Diversity can be a catalyst for a competitive advantage, while the inclusion of all could send a concrete message of solidarity from employers that all perspectives, strengths, and talents will be valued in the workforce. However, it starts with a strong commitment and acknowledgement that building relationships and trust will be at the forefront of any discussion. So if you're an industry executive, a CEO, or in a leadership position, Dr. Gina Cox would like to have a word with you. She's the CEO and founder of Fields Human Inc., a company which assists CEOs, executives, board members, and other business leaders where they want to build an inclusive workplace culture but don't know where to start. She joined me this week to have a comprehensive, insightful, and informative conversation about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workforce as we look to infuse inclusivity in every aspect of the workforce, making sure that all employees have the opportunity to flourish and thrive. I'm Kevin McShann, led to this conversation. formally welcome you to the program and I'm excited to learn all about how you help companies uh, create an inclusive work culture. Great to be with you uh, this afternoon and thanks so much for being here. Yes. Yeah, I'm really pleased to be here, Kevin. When you extended the invitation, it was a no-brainer that I would want to join you very specifically because actually I know who you are in the sense of having been aware of your work and the funny thing about it is, you know, I'm very interested in the human experience and I, I focus on the workplace, as you know, but the human experience is a human experience. And one of the things that I know, um, and one of my friends whose colleagues, her name is Ludmilla, Dr. Ludmilla Praslova, focuses on neurodiversity. And she and I have a lot of conversations about how the world of work is, it's almost as if a veil has been lifted or the filter is being clarified so that organizations are starting to talk about these issues in real ways where they're really putting the human at the center as opposed to you know people talking about diversity and inclusion programs or something that is abstract and really doesn't solve any problems I'm really interested in the human experience. And if it just also happens to include the fact that humans vary in a variety of ways, I think that is exactly what all leaders should be talking about. Absolutely, Dr. Cox. And I'm curious to bring in our discussion by asking you, you know, this pandemic has made us 
reevaluate everything in terms of work culture and inclusion. So how do you think we can take this opportunity to really evaluate how we offer inclusive workplaces in the workforce? Well, yes. So this is another one of those cases where there is a silver lining to the pandemic. Um, in fact, just today on LinkedIn, I wrote a note in response to a, a post from the head of HR at IBM who had post, made this beautiful post in which she included photographs of her family. And the whole idea of her post was to say, I'm I took a break. I was able to get away with my family. I feel refreshed. And I understand that this is also what the employees in my company need to do. So what does that have to do with your question? What it has to do with your question is that leaders in big companies are beginning to understand that it's really all about a human experience. So whether you're talking about um, gender, whether you're talking about race, whether you're talking about various ways in which people differ, what it is really doing is we're saying we're putting the human at the center of the conversation again, we have to, the number one thing that all employees are asking for is flexibility, uh, the, the, especially women. And if you look at it from the lens of, you know, again, these differences that people call out um, and that seem to carry a lot of weight, the only thing that a person of color, let's say, or a person with a neuro difference or a person with a physical difference, the only thing that person wants is to be seen, to be heard and to be respected any leader can provide those things. They just have to be focused on thinking about that um, and recognizing that it is very, very important. And Dr. Cox, I know you focus on optimizing uh, employers' understanding about uh, the value of their employees. So I'm wondering your thoughts on women specifically, since you brought it up, you know, since the pandemic has started, uh, more uh, than half the women in the workforce have left uh, to take care of a, chi a child or uh, their household. So I'm wondering uh, your thoughts specifically on how we infuse women back into the workforce. Yeah. So unfortunately, Kevin, there is no easy answer for this because there's, of course, the, the, the first of all, what you said is true. The second thing is that it continues. The problem is still very, very much real, and it's probably going to get a little bit worse before it gets better. Let me tell you why I said that, Kevin. Just today, Fortune magazine, Maria Aspan, I follow her work, and she published an article today that was, ex that was excellent. What Maria Aspan highlighted was that this whole issue with regard to the way the pandemic has affected women economically, it's not an issue of the past, it's an issue of the present, and it's going to get a little bit worse because what we know is coming is going to be a period of time where there will be people getting evicted from their homes because now we're coming to the point where uh, the protections that have been in place, at least in the United States, for some of these families may go away. My point I'm making here is that it's, this is, we're in the middle of this. We actually don't know the full effect of these economic um, realities on the, on the experiences of all employees. And then if you take women, who are the, you know, the primary caregivers of both kids and also elderly adults and so on. And then they, they're doing the homeschooling and all of that. That has not yet improved. So what her article was arguing for, which I agree with, is leaders have got to recognize that this problem is probably bigger than they th thought it was. And it's going to persist longer than they thought it was. 
which means they have to really be focused on solutions and the solutions will include being different. You can no longer say, well, that's not part of the leadership responsibility. If you wanna have women back in the workforce, you're gonna to have to think about policy, about providing social, the services, the childcare, the flexibility, the remote work, maybe even, um, you know, uh, maybe providing some kind of support or subsidy to help people with childcare costs or healthcare costs. These are services that organizations will probably have to think about providing if they want more women back in the workforce. Yeah, uh, specifically, absolutely. And I know you also focus on the emotional aspect of the day-to-day -day operations between employees and employers. And you say that most employers don't like to uh, focus on the most emotional side of that. So I'm wondering if you could explain a little bit more about that. Oh, absolutely. And thank you for that question, Kevin. Yeah, I, I, I always say that I cringe whenever I hear a leader use the expression soft skills. When, a, when I hear a leader use the expression soft skills, it sounds like what they're saying is that things that have to do with the human experience are less than hard skills, which are things that have to do with the operation, the sales, the production, and so on. And here's what I think that it's the human that has to be at the center of everything. So the so it relates to your question in that I would like for all leaders to recognize, especially after this pandemic and the social justice calls, that they're not effective if they're not focusing on the human experience, pretending it doesn't exist. I want every manager to recognize that whether you have a group of 10 or a group of 20, you are the only person in the organization who is expected to understand Gina's needs and Kevin's needs. Who else does that? And if you don't do it, nobody else does it, which means my needs don't get met and I am less engaged and less productive. It's part of the job. Absolutely. And Dr. Cox, you know, I live my life or the prism and model of uh, inclusion is the gateway to independence. And I wonder uh, if that uh, sentiment resonates with you at all. Well, absolutely. And while I do not know exactly your particular experience, my, my perspective on this whole idea of inclusion as a gateway to independence is that there are there are, opportunities are endless. They're boundless. The opportunities are there. Someone asked me recently, is it possible to have diversity without inclusion? And I said, yes. In fact, that's what we've had all along is diversity because all of these differences in humans have always existed. What is different now is that we're starting to recognize, which is really a, a new idea, that what if every person, regardless of the differences, had access to the same opportunities as everybody else? If you did, then this whole notion of independence would go along with that. Because what you're saying is, I, want, I don't need you to take care of me. I don't need to give you to give me a handout. I don't need you to give me anything. All you need to give me is access to the opportunity and I'm gonna run with it and accomplish the very same things. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. You know, Dr. Cox, I just to give you a little bit of background, I was born with what's called uh, spastic quadriplegia cerebral palsy. Uh, it just simply means that I don't have enough oxygen in my legs to walk normally. And part of my background is working in inclusive employment for people with physical disabilities. So I'm curious to ask you, um, 
in that vein, what do you think it's going to take to infuse more people with physical disabilities into the workforce? Yeah. So uh, I told you early on, I was really honored that you invited me onto your, onto your show because my experience as a black woman uh, in the workplace and as an immigrant, I did not grow up in the United States. I grew up in, in the Caribbean. What I learned is that sometimes when people see something or experience something that they haven't before, they just do not know what to do. And it's easier to do nothing. So whether it's whatever the difference that we're talking about, including physical differences, neuro differences, I think the very first thing that every that organization should do is recognize that in fact, they're not differences, they're just the way people vary, that they're just as normal, it's normal to have variation. And that the you know, leaders of organizations should model the way by saying, we just we want all kinds of people to be able to work in our organization as long as they can do whatever the job is that, that they're supposed to do. But you, if you don't start with the first person, you don't get to the second person and you don't get to the third person. So organizations have got to say that this is all normal. We just want this variation in our workforce. And eventually what I have observed is that then the people around you uh, the, uh, that used to call you different, in my case, because I was black or because I had an accent, after a while, it becomes, it starts to recede. It's not as, it's not as big of a deal. It's not as much, an, it's not worthy of conversation because you know what, I'm just here doing my thing. So I think that's a mindset. I think it does require eventually numbers. You do have to hire people who have physical differences and, and um, variations and newer variations. You, you have to just look at the human and give that uh, person the same opportunity. Um, I don't think, and I think leaders have to model the way, they have to talk about these things openly and set the expectations. And Dr. Cox, to that vein, I'm also wondering your thoughts on what it means to be Black in America today in the context of getting equal treatment at work, how the social justice movements have impacted the workplace as well. Yeah. So, Kevin, I can only speak for Gina. And let me tell you what Gina knows. And, and part of why I'm saying it that way is I have spent a lot of time recently helping leaders to understand that Black Americans vary. We're not a monolith, right? We have very different experiences. We care about different things. You can't assume we all think the same. I came to the United States when I was 20. And when I came to the United States from a country where more people were brown than were not brown, I came to the United States believing that I, would, I am excellent, I will be excellent, and that's just who I am. When I got here, it was kind of like a natural experiment, Kevin. When I got here is when I realized that when people would see me, they didn't have that expectation. They expected me to be maybe less than, not as much as, uh, not able, not as able, as capable, like something less. I didn't expect that. So I learned, wait a minute, that's not, that's not who I am. I'm still the same Gina. So when you ask about the experience, I, I, mean, I think that um, we have like a, a bit of an awakening about these issues prior to George Floyd's uh, killing that we were not having open conversations about this. This is not to say that we're having enough open conversations. We are at a starting point. This is a long game, Kevin. It's not going to be fixed tomorrow. 
But if, if every leader in every organization would say that what they want from their leaders is that their leaders will be good leaders of every and good, good advocates for and good um, representatives on behalf of every individual employee in the company, then black people would have a great experience, brown people would too, Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, those are her, who are neurodiverse and physically diverse. Because the things that have happened uh, since last summer, it's just that we are finally looking at each other and not pretending that we don't exist, that people who don't look like us don't exist or that they're less than. Um, so there's progress that has been made in that way of thinking there's a lot more work that needs to be done in the day-to-day -day realities. Absolutely. And Dr. Cox, you shared with me uh, that you're currently writing a book where you're sharing all of your uh, insights and perspectives on building an inclusive work culture. So I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about the book, book what's it about, and uh, what has you most excited about it? Yeah, Kevin, thank you for the honor of that question. So the book will be published next year. Writing a book takes a long time. The publishing process is, is uh, not quick. Um, but it is a book for business leaders to help them understand the role that they should be playing with regard to these issues that we call diversity and inclusion. And if I, I use that language because everybody understands now, you know, sort of what that means. Because what I learned from talking to executives as clients is that some of them are frustrated because they've tried some things that haven't had a positive impact. And some of them are a little bit fearful that everything that they do gets criticized. It's like a no-win situation. I do want to make a positive difference. Maybe I'm not perfect. When I try something, instead of people praising me for trying, they criticize me. So it's for that kind of a leader to help them know that they can do this. It's, it may seem a little bit, um, it is out of the ordinary because they're more accustomed to focusing on marketing and sales, but what if they could become as proficient in understanding these issues as they are about understanding marketing and sales and finance, they can do it and my book is gonna help them do that. And, and Dr. Cox, I'm, I'm curious to get your perspective on how hiring inclusively uh, gives uh, companies uh, competitive advantage. Yeah. So, I mean, there are a lot of ways to think about this, but the truth is I, I'm going to keep it at the human level because I don't like it when people tell me the value is in the dollar, although the value, there's obviously a financial benefit, but for me, the real value of thinking this way is imagine if you have a hundred employees and only 50% of those employees or 60% of those employees come to work every day have a great experience, do the best that they can, and, and the other half or the other 40% come in, their managers ignore them, their managers don't train them, they don't give them the opportunities to develop and have promotions, they don't teach them the new skills, they kind of wither on the vine. And yes, they're producing, but aren't you probably missing some, some value in what they could be producing if they were equally supported, right? So, and then of course, there's a human element that each person shouldn't have to come into work feeling that way. You should be able to come into work and just say, today, I'm going to be the best gene I could ever be, and I'm going to make the best widget and believe it and do it. So for organizations, there's that, it's almost like a moral obligation of why would you want half of your or some proportion to not be having that? 
And then of course, there's the piece of you're probably not optimizing the talent and you're probably not optimizing your business results either. And uh, when, when, pe when, people, when people give you the phrase, representation matters, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering your uh, initial reaction uh, to that term and uh, vernacular. Yeah, I mean, I, I have, I don't use it a lot though. There's no, there's not a reason I don't use it, but I do believe it. I do believe representation matters. Okay, since 1800, since um, 1955, about 1800 uh, Fortune 500 CEOs in the United States have been chosen in the Fortune 500. Of those, only about 100 have been women. And of those 100, only four have been black women in the entire history of the Fortune 500. That is low representation. And why does that matter? It's low representation because black women, um, you know, would be, you know, and a proportion of the overall population would be like 13, 12, 13 percent. So the population, the representation of black women in, in Fortune 500 C-suites is less than 1 percent over all those years since 1955. Why representation matters is that a child, a, a Gina, a little Gina that's born, and comes into the world and looks around and says, who's running this world? Who's running this business world? We'll hardly ever see somebody that looks like Gina, right? She had no idea that a Gina could run a Fortune 500 company because there's so few of us. It's so representation, representation matters when Maya Angelou uh, gives a speech at the inauguration of a, of a president. And then you have many, many years later, a youth poet uh, who does her her poem uh, uh, at the at the at the Capitol, and does an ex extremely good job, and she happens to be brown, and young people go, oh my gosh, poetry! I had no idea that poetry was that important, and that brown people could do it. Represent representation matters because often people's aspirations only get developed when they see what is possible. It makes a huge difference. And Dr. Kachlam, um wanting to uh, wrap this up by asking you um, if you've given any thought to how you want your uh, personal and uh, professional legacy to be defined. Yeah, you know, my life changed uh, last year because the weight of what happened with Mr. Floyd, uh, I took it very, very personally. It wasn't the first time something like that had happened. But I think it was just the visual, the the you know that you saw on television. I never, I, I will never forget it. And that was why I decided to write a book. I mean, I had always wanted to write a book, but I had never committed to do it. I committed to do it in that moment because I feel like I know some things. I have a point of view. I have experiences. I have training that when you, it's relatively relatively unique. You know, there are not a lot of black female industrial psychologists in the United States who were born in another country and have the perspective of an immigrant. If you take it all together, I, I feel like my legacy is part, is all about helping leaders who might not look like me to understand that people who look like me have so much to offer and that they, I can help them to show, to understand how to connect with people like like me. I hope that's my legacy. And just one follow-up. I'm curious how you uh, celebrate your culture here in America <laughs> and what do you like most about living the American way? 
Well, United States is a fantastic place. Let's let's not be um, let's not uh, let's be very clear that there are opportunities available in this country that are not available elsewhere, and that I have been a proud and lucky recipient of many of those benefits. So this is a great place to live. But uh, I would it would not be as good a place to live if I didn't get to eat every now and then some Barbadian coconut bread, some flying fish and cuckoo, some kalalu, some roti, and all of those other things that are from the Caribbean. So when you ask about how do I appreciate, how do I enjoy the culture, I, I always make sure I'm eating those foods. And every now and then I get to Toronto for Caribana, which of course was not this year, but um, uh, I keep in touch with people who are from the Caribbean and I listen to the music and I dance. Uh, I haven't lost touch. I'm very much in touch. Well, Dr. Cox, I tell you, there's a value in human connection, isn't there? Yes, absolutely, Kevin. Um, and that's really all that matters. It, but you know what? When I entered corporate America, that was undervalued. Uh, and, I, and I've come to the point where I, I'm so glad that people are starting to see that you know, spending 30 minutes with someone, even in a Zoom call like this one, can be a very powerful experience if you're just like connecting with that human. That's it. It can be, ex it is extremely powerful and it's something that um, I value highly. Yes. Well, Dr. Kaka, I have to tell you that I valued uh, this conversation a great deal. I was very much looking forward to it. And just before uh, we wrap today's discussion up, What's the best way people can get in contact with you if they're so inclined to do that? Thank you, Kevin. So the easiest way to reach me, my name is uh, Gina, G-E-N-A-C-O-X at feels, F-E-E-L-S, human.com. Gina Cox at feelshuman.com. And you can also find me on LinkedIn. Uh, just look for my name uh, and I'd be happy to talk. Fantastic. Dr. Cox, I really want to uh, thank you for your time, your insights and perspectives, and for having an in-depth discussion with me about diversity, equity, and inclusion. It was great to be with you uh, this, this afternoon, and I want to thank you for taking my questions. It's most appreciated. Oh, it has been a pleasure, and I will do it again whenever you ask. <laughs>